0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. So we have to come to God and say, God, would you give to us drink from the river of delight? Would you open your word? Would you teach us? Would you reveal Christ to us? And the preacher stands in the very same place that you, the listener, stands in need of that. So I'm going to pray and pray with me that God would do that for all of us. That he would give us to drink from the river of delight. That he would reveal Christ to us. That he would shine light here. And as the very next verse says, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. That would shine as light and help us. I'm going to pray towards that. Pray with me for that, please. Let's pray. God Almighty, we are your people who stand under you in need of your grace, of your help. We stand here now before a passage in your Scripture that we're going to open and think about and talk about and try to understand. But we are in need of, at every step of the way, in need of your Spirit's work in us to give us soft hearts, to be receptive to your truth, to give us keen minds to understand it. Illumine the Word for us. Shine light, we pray. Lord, in, into my cold heart, into the, the hearts of men and women who are, who are sitting here in all different places. Some of us are cold, some of us are very warm and very fervent and everywhere in between. But would you please forgive us of our sin and clear away all barriers and shine light that we can see you. We have a particular passage we're going to look at So use that, we pray. But but beyond just the details of this particular passage, would you show us your goodness and your character? Maybe you want to take some little piece of what we're going to talk about and expand that for a particular man or woman or boy or girl here and and kind of grow that. Do that, Lord. Then, Then take that little piece and bless this person who needs that. For The main theme, though, this morning, Lord, about your work among the nations, would you cause us to see your great... Your great global vision and your great desire for a people to be gathered from the peoples. Help us to see that and to marvel at it, to rejoice in it, and to want to be a part of it. Help us here with that, Lord, I pray. And I'm mindful, Lord, that we have, a number of us have kids in the youth ministry who are away at the retreat this morning and they're being taught something, probably right now even. They're interacting with your truth themselves, and I pray that in that place with them you would shine light and you would affect them and change their hearts. Would you call middle schoolers and call high schoolers to follow you with abandon, to want you more than they want anything else? That does not come naturally for them or for us adults, their parents. So we look to you again and say, please, affect change there at the youth retreat right now, affect change here in this room right now, that we would be a people who pursue you, who see you, who love you, who rest in you because of your grace in revealing yourself to us. Make that happen, I ask you, Lord. Your Spirit's power here in this place, would you make that happen? Build your church, I pray. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we turn to First Corinthians chapter sixteen this morning, we are in the home stretch of this book. Chapter fifteen was the, the pinnacle, is the whole thing the book's moving towards, and we saw there that Paul spends a lot of time and a lot of ink discussing the issue of the resurrection of the dead. You save that to last because it is the the natural, final resting place of of this redemptive work that God has been doing to bring to Himself a people, to bring them from death back to life. To bring us out of condemnation on sin and to bring us even out of physical graves. To bring us to life. That's where God's moving and that's where Paul's been moving in this whole letter. He's discussed that now in chapter 15. And I just want to say here at the beginning that if you missed all that, or if you missed pieces of it, don't miss the point that you, if you're a Christian, if you're a person who has trusted Christ, if you rest in Him and in Him alone for salvation, not some combination of your works and His work, but in His work on the cross alone, there's something marvelous that you should know. You actually are forgiven. And you actually will live after you die forever. If you missed pieces of that, go back and read chapter 15 again and ask God to open it up to you. It is a marvelous truth. And knowing that then, and the reason I come back to that is that where we ended the very last verse, verse 15 to chapter 15, knowing that matters. Knowing that you have life in Christ, knowing that you will have life again forever and ever, and that all of God's purposes in your life and through your efforts are accomplished, none of them are in vain. Knowing that affects how you live now here with this life, and it should motivate you to give this life away. As he said in verse 58, to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord. The work that we are to be involved in, the work that Paul is involved in, that Timothy is involved in, as we'll see in our passage for today, it's the work of the Lord, which might lead us to ask, well, what is the work that the Lord is about, and that Paul is about and Timothy is about and we are to be about? What is that? And we're going to use this first 11 verses, this first chunk of chapter 16, to kind of explore that a little bit. So that's what I'm working on. And... What I'm going to point out is that generally speaking, it's what we're going to talk about is the work of the Lord among the nations. That's what's going to come of rise out of the text to us. And I need to clarify something at the very beginning. When I say nations, I do not mean something like a modern nation state, like the nation of France or the nation of Turkey. Biblically speaking, nation initially meant those who weren't Jews, those who are out there the others, and then it kind of comes to mean the other people groups of the world. So nations, as I'm going to be using it this morning, is the peoples, groups of people scattered across the globe, and the work of the Lord is something in them, something about them, It involves the nations. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now we are going to find as we read through this passage that there is a certain bit of tying up loose ends. Can't avoid that here at the end of the letter, but I want to encourage you... Keep thinking. As, as I've said, we're going to talk about a, a, a main point, and I will need to kind of touch on some of the other little things because they're here, and all of God's word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so I need, need to touch on those points. So don't don't just skip over those things or think, here we are at the end, there's not, nothing important here. Hold with me on this, and allow me to pull these points together and, and make a main point about God's work among the nations. That's where we're going this morning. So let me read the whole passage. This is is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 11. And I'll pass back through to make some of those smaller points before moving to the main issue. 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. "...on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia... For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. 1 Corinthians 16. This chapter begins, you'll notice, with the phrase that we've seen before, now concerning, which indicates that Paul's taking up an issue that they raise with him they want some clarification on. So he's going to talk about this idea of the collection for the saints at Jerusalem. You can read about that in other places in the New Testament. Paul had instructed others, for instance, as it says here, the the churches in the region of Galatia, which is kind of a big region right in the middle of what is modern Turkey. He told the churches there, and he's telling this church here in Corinth to take up a collection to help out with the the trouble, the the hardship that the church in Jerusalem was facing. And here in verse 3, he calls it a gift... Romans 15, he calls it a, an act of service, a fellowship, a solidarity. Romans 15.26 uses the word koinonia. For those of you involved in our koinonia ministry here, you have some idea what that means. Kind of a, of a fellowship, a solidarity. And so he's, he's got this idea that he wants all these churches throughout Galatia and the Corinthian church also to participate in solidarity, to give a gift of, of help to the church in Jerusalem. And it's worth noting how and when they are to do this. On the first day of the week, that is on Sunday, verse 2. Each of you put something aside and store it up. Well, why Sunday? That wasn't payday. Why did he he pick Sunday? Because from the, the very early days of the church... As Christians began to develop their own identity, they they almost instinctively moved over to worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the day that the Lord rose. A bit like if you were to think, let's celebrate your birthday. Well, what day were you born? That's the day we should celebrate. What day was he raised? What day did, did he bring to us this gift of life? Well, then that's the day we should come together to celebrate, which is why forever thousands of years of churches met to worship on Sunday there's a pattern there for us that we should note we shouldn't move aside off of Sunday which isn't to say there's no no, no exceptions to that rule but there's a pattern laid down throughout the church for centuries for millennium sunday was their sabbath and so naturally, that becomes the day they think about this collection to set aside money and store it up. But the language of the, of the passage pretty strongly indicates that different from the regular offerings that would be taken to meet the needs of the church, this is a, a special gathering of money, and it was to be done by individuals in their own homes. And what we find here then are a couple of, of helpful principles about collecting money in the church. One of these little loose ends I want to touch on. What Paul instructs them here has has a couple of effects. First, it removes the public pressure of giving. There's no public pressure of bringing an offering week after week to be given in front of everybody else. You in your own home, store it, set it aside. As you look at how God has prospered you, you say, I'm going to set this portion aside, and you keep it there. There's no weekly giving, and there's not going to be any Paul showing up and sharing the ministry need, and let's pass the plate and collect it. Week by week, set it aside in your own home. He's doing everything that he can to remove public pressure. God loves a cheerful giver, and he doesn't want to create a manipulated one. So keep it in your own home. And then secondly, when it does come time to bring it all together and then send it off to Jerusalem... He does what he can to establish accountability. You put it in the hands of people from your own congregation that you know well and that you trust, accredited ones. So the money is going to be always kept in in open, if you will, in your own hands or in the hands of those several people that you know. There are a couple of principles here that are just wise points for us to observe. which which I don't share to correct what we're doing, but just to kind of point out wisdom. Avoiding manipulation and assuring accountability is pretty important. More than one church has been burned on these points. So Paul, Paul gives wise advice here. Then verses 5 to 11 are included under a riveting heading, travel plans. You read that and you think, man, there's going to be great spiritual truth here for us travel plans. To be honest, there's a bit of just kind of travel plan sort of stuff. He's going to go. He's he's, going to come to Corinth eventually, but he can't come right now, so he sends Timothy. Timothy's already on his way. He wants them to receive Timothy and then to send Timothy when he leaves, well provided for, just like you're going to Provide for me when I come, verses 6 and 11. Both point out that the church is involved in financially providing for people who are about the work of the gospel, the work of the Lord. So earlier in the book, Paul had had shied away from that, but here he just assumes it. says, this is what should be. Provide for Timothy, provide for me when I come. But he can't come yet because he's stuck in Ephesus. Stuck voluntarily in Ephesus. Why? Well, verse 9 says, There is great opportunity for the work of the Lord to advance in that city, a city in what's modern Turkey. He says there, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Therefore, I have to stay. Ministry opportunity, which makes a whole lot of sense to us. I I can understand why somebody would stay there until I read the next phrase. And there are many people who are against me. A wide door for effective work is opened, and there are many adversaries. Those two things readily fit together in Paul's mind, but perhaps not so readily in ours. If you read Acts 19, you get some idea about what the adversaries are like, where there's heavy occult activity there, there's a riot in Ephesus. It's the kind of environment that we would evacuate a missions team out of. And Paul says, I can't leave here. There's much opportunity here. Oh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people who hate my guts. Yep. I have to stay. There's great opportunity here. A wide open door by the hand of God. That's the passage. What an Odd collection of stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that as I work through that, a whole bunch of us are thinking, this is totally boring. <laughs> What's here? Well, there is a whole bunch of random stuff. But let me pull a couple of points together to make this one main, main issue this morning clear, I hope. Here's my main theme. Our Lord is using us... In His work, our Lord is using us in His work of making one people from among all the nations. It's my main sentence this morning. The Lord is using us in His work, the work of the Lord, in His work of making one people from among all the nations. I'm going to just break that into two pieces to make my my two observations. I'm going to try to root it in the verses that we just read. First one is what I'll call a a state of being. What God has made to be, what he has made so. And we are to recognize that and to live reflecting it. So here's the first point. God has made one people from among all the peoples of the nations. God has made one people from among all the peoples of the nations. He always taught from the very beginning that God takes the initiative to step out into all the peoples all across the globe and pull out from them people to make a people. Follow that. From all the peoples, he pulls out ones to make a people. He taught that from the very beginning. We could trace this back biblically. Perhaps we should start with Abram. When God said, Abram, I pick you, not not Abram's father, not Abram's brother, Abram. Why? Because God decided. And he picked him out and he made a promise to this one guy. He made a promise, I will be your God and I will be the God to all of your descendants after you, all of your line after you. And I will pour out on you my blessing. I will protect you. I will bring you into a place and you will experience the bounty and the goodness and the grace of God, you and those in your line after you because I have decided to do so. A marvelous promise that comes from God to a man who's not looking for it and has no idea about it at all. But God makes the promise, and God picks him out. And then, throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament, the primary locus of God's work, the the primary area in which God works, is this physical line tracing from Abram, Abraham, the Jewish people. Now now he did, to be be quite clear, there are many, 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 many many passages in the Old Testament that talk about how he's going to keep going out to the nations to call people from them and bring them in. Psalm 67, one of my favorites. Psalm 67 says, I will bless you, Israel, so that the nations, those out there, the nations will be glad and sing for joy experiencing my goodness and my reign. God always intended throughout the whole Old Testament to bring people from the peoples and make a people. Always. But by and large, that didn't happen in the times of the Old Testament. Messiah needed to come for that. And that is the marvelous turn the New Testament takes where the gospel breaks out of this one little ethnic people group in this one little bitty country. It breaks out and goes. And so God is engaged in calling in, actively today, calling in all kinds of people from the nations. Look where we see this in this passage. Paul, the Roman citizen, Jewish Pharisee, Christian apostle, is teaching a church in Corinth the same thing he taught to churches all across Galatia in regards to a church in Jerusalem. Stop and think about that. I know this is plain as day obvious, but stop and think about that for a second. Across all kinds of geographic lines and across Great distances. This people, Corinthians, Galatians, Jews in Jerusalem, this people is connected across all kinds of political lines. There, there, are, there are numerous different ancient kingdoms reflected in, in these geographic areas. Across political some of them are Roman citizens, many of them aren't across ethnic lines, all sorts of ethnic lines. Corinth was a cosmopolitan city that gathered in people into this port from everywhere in the Mediterranean world. People of all kinds of different skin color, people of all kinds of different backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, gathered together in this city, let alone the greatest divide of Jew and Gentile. It's a Jewish church in in Jerusalem, and it's a Gentile church everywhere else by and large. And religious backgrounds, religious sensibilities were quite different. Even up to Paul's last visit to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church still had a core in it that was really hung up on following the Mosaic law, which the Gentile churches knew quite well was passé. You can stop and think about, there are all sorts of reasons For these people to exist separate from one another, distinct, and yet they don't. They stand united together as one people under one Lord who has indeed, as Ephesians 2 said, torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free, between man and woman, between everything that would divide people. He's taken all of these sorts of ones and has grafted them into that one branch, the family tree of Abraham, making one people. Fulfilling his promise to Abraham to make for him many countless descendants and on them to pour out his grace, his blessing. That's the work of the Lord. That's what God is doing. Calling in from the peoples a people. And I imagine that as I say this, it is at least familiar to, I hope it's quite familiar to most of us here. That's what God's about. It's worth noting that it's kind of behind the text here. But I'm not pointing this out just just to make this point. We have to notice the application of it. So far, I've only stated what Paul is assuming. Notice the application. Verse 1. As I directed the churches of Galatia, like I commanded them, So you are to do, that's an imperative, that's a command. Verse 2 Put something aside, that's also an imperative, a command. This is not an opportunity to give, it's a command from the apostle to be obeyed. Paul has commanded the churches in Galatia and is commanding the church in Corinth. Now, Paul's an apostle, and we don't have any apostles like that around anywhere today. This sort of command is never going to come to us again from a person like him again. But don't miss the point in it. There is very much a point in Paul's command to them that we need to get today. So keep following this along. His command, put something aside. How much? Well, in line with how you have been prospered. which grammatically is an ongoing passive thing. God prospers you. I don't prosper myself with my hard work. God prospers. I'm a receiver of it. I'm passive. And it happens day after day after day. I am prospered. You are prospered. In part, day by day, He prospers the Corinthians so that they can eat their own daily bread. For sure but also in part for the purpose of gracing Jerusalem. Literally, when it says to carry your gift to Jerusalem in verse 3, it literally is to carry your grace to Jerusalem. So God prospers me with grace that I am to carry to Jerusalem. I am prospered in part for myself, but in part to prosper them grace through me to them well why why not god why not just directly prosper jerusalem he could do that and it would cut out a whole bunch of middlemen save a whole bunch of time and hassle because Travel back then is not very easy. They've got to travel hundreds of miles to get there. They've got to worry about danger and theft and whatnot along the road. Why not just cut all that out and directly, instead of prospering Corinthians, prosper the people in Jerusalem? Fix the problem. God could do that. Why not? What would be lost? What would be lost? This is what would be lost. A Gentile... Corinthian, former Roman slave, let's say, standing in Jerusalem with money in his hand saying, Here, this for you, because, verse 1, you are a saint, and I am a saint. Your father is Abraham, and my father is Abraham. All the other Jews around here? they're not helping you at all, are they? They cut you off. All the other Gentiles out there, they're not helping you at all, are they? They have no concern for you. They think you're a dog. And you likewise. But you and I, we have nothing at all in common. Nothing. You don't understand my life. You don't know my kids. You don't know my city. You don't know my occupation. And I don't know yours. We can hardly talk to each other. But you are a saint. And so am I. Here, God's grace to me for you. That is a a powerful lesson to see, to to experience, to taste. It's like two pieces of cloth with a a needle and thread going through one and coming out the other and cinching them together. I have come from way in the world over there to meet your physical need. Why? One reason and one reason only, Jesus. Who does that highlight? Jesus. Jesus. What does it highlight? A people. A brotherhood. If God just blessed them directly, none of that would be experienced. None of it would be seen. None of it would be learned. God has done something in in this particular situation. God did something to meet the needs of His people in Jerusalem. Absolutely, He wanted to do that. But He did it In a way that was particularly designed to reflect the one who creates oneness. And to reflect the oneness. And also to provide an opportunity for us, his people, to experience his blessing and to experience the blessing of giving. Of letting go of our stuff. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And not only do I say something when I give, I find something. I say, I will give away my treasure knowing, verse 58, knowing that I have a life somewhere else that is secure. I say, I treasure something else other than this cash. Here, I say that, and then I also find, when I give away the cash, I find I have another life that actually fills me and sustains me and upholds me. God has done something to teach me to teach the other brothers and to display to the world a oneness that makes no sense whatsoever apart from Jesus, apart from us both being saints. And that's the point for us here. We likewise are a part of and are connected to, cinched up to, are connected and obligated to one body of all sorts of different people. I don't want to I don't want to denigrate the fact that there are natural human connections. I naturally humanly connect with some people more than others. That's true. But I don't want us to miss the point that we are very differently, very genuinely connected to people with whom we have nothing in common other than Christ. And we are obligated to them. So there are two things here that we need to take away from this. First, a recognition of what is, that there is a people, a, a people, a single people that we are a part of to recognize that and to grow i hope I, I pray in a maybe in a bit of a of a mindset change that they are not just out there they are mine they are my brothers my sisters i have a, an obligation to them you do an obligation Each one of us, and we as a church, an obligation to the nations. The nations out there, and the nations who have come here, and maybe the nations who are sitting in the chair right next to you. Because that's always true in in the type of country we live in. It's especially true in our particular church. Those of us here who, who are... Sudanese background, forgive me for just a minute as I speak about you to the rest of us. The nations are in this room. Now they are out there also. And I want us to never forget that. But I need to point out the nations are right here. And we are one with them. Obligated. So the first point is that I would hope, I would ask, I would pray that God would make there to be a mindset change in us that we would see ourselves as connected, as one. And the the second piece is that naturally, once you have gotten to the point of family, then the next piece is, is somewhat natural. How can I help? If, if just think of your of your family, of somebody that you love you 're connected to, you let me, you live in the same house with them. You see a problem there There's there 's another problem if somebody has to come in and tell you she fell down, help her up. You just do it if you care. if the first mindset is if, has been set properly, that you see a, a relationship and you are concerned about it, then what do I do about it? It Springs naturally but maybe it doesn't spring so naturally for us and I have to point something out that I want to up front say I don't have a complete handle on this myself I have maybe as many questions as answers maybe more questions than answers I don't know but it's real we are Corinth in this way too we are the prospered ones and American church we we have to be honest about this there is going to come a time one day when god's going to say i prospered you to prosper the rest of my people and it never got there why not why not why not There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Which doesn't mean there is no recognition of lost opportunity and sorrow over it. God will take care of his people. God's work is not thwarted by me. But there is going to be a day when he's going to say, I blessed you, I gave you, maybe you individually, but you all... More money than any group of Christians has ever had in all of history. And it got stuck there. Why? Was it because you didn't really believe, verse 58, and everything that's before it? That you have a life that is secured. That I have I have provided... A certain blessing for you, and nothing fails. I hold you and I will repay everything you expend, everything you give away. You can't lose. Did you not believe that? I I tried to prove it to you. I tried to teach it to you in your word, the word that I gave you, and I tried to show it to you in the cross and the resurrection. I'm preaching that at you. Remember that a minute ago I just said I have a lot more questions than I do answers about this because I don't know how that applies to every single moment's decisions about how to spend money. It gets really complicated. Truth in advertising. I bought a computer last week. My computer broke. I needed a new computer. But I could have bought a cheaper computer than the one I did. Was that right or wrong? I think, which is why I did it, I think it was right. I don't know how to sort all these things out. One of these days, I'm going to have to buy a car. My teenage daughter hopes it's real soon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to buy clothes, I'm going to buy a house, and so are you. And at every... Some of you are going to... This sermon's going to ring in your ears when you go to lunch this afternoon. You think, should I buy a Coke or should I drink water? And unfortunately, some of you are never going to think about it when you buy the boat. You're not. You're just going to do it because you want it. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you about that. I do know that God motivates us that God intends to motivate us and intends to change us by grace with promise. And that one of the things He would want to do in you is to work, verse 58, into your mind, that you would be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It pays off. There's promise out there. There's benefit out there. There's, there's hope for gain. That, that's how God works in us. Less... less the SWAT, stop that, don't do that. And more, do this. Go grab your gain. That, that's how God primarily speaks to us. And so I don't want to slap you, I want to offer. There's great gain in godliness. And there is great gain in living a life laid down for the family of God. I don't know what that means about Coke or water at lunch today. That which is without faith is sin. So live by faith. Live trusting Him, depending on Him. Not under obligation or guilt or because I should. I know there are a whole bunch of questions open up there. Maybe those are things you would discuss in your gospel community conversations this afternoon over lunch. And if the one person had Coke... Don't hammer them for that. <laughs> but a couple suggestions I can I not make here. Don't be paralyzed by the uncertainty of all of this. I would recommend that you pray and ask God to, to say, what should I do? How should I spend my money? What am I doing with my money? Read the book Radical. It's on the book table. You can get it cheap lots of places. You can get it cheap right out there if you want. Read the book Radical. And give something. Give of your time to the nations that are here. Give of your money to the nations that are here. Give of your money to missions, organizations, to Christian Relief. Give a little bit of money. Don't go extreme walking out of here, because tomorrow you'll regret it. I don't want to create any compulsion on you. In your own home, set something aside. Give a little bit and pray a little bit and say, God, have my life which includes my checkbook and includes my calendar, have my life. It is a part of and it is obligated to the people of God, the one people everywhere. So that's my first point that I pull out of here. There is a a worldwide, global people of which we are a part and to which we are obligated. That's the first point. And the second one, the second one is, turns a little bit. It's related. So let me just state it. The Lord's work of making His one people from among all the nations is costly. The Lord's work of making His one people is costly. There's a, a cost in this work. We've already noted the passage mentions churches in Galatia and Jerusalem and Corinth. And we should add in Macedonia, a bunch of churches there also, which he mentions. Two of those are cities. Two of them are regions with many cities. And Paul and his buddies went to all of them. The churches there didn't just happen. Paul and his team went to all of those places. And what was that like? Well, in addition to the money that the churches that sent them put up and supported them put up, I mean, it cost the churches money, but it cost Paul and his team a price. Like what? Well, to get an idea of it, you can read verse 9. Many adversaries. Think like the story of Paul's life. Many adversaries. In Macedonia... He was beaten, jailed, and sought out by a riotous mob that wanted to kill him. In Galatia, he was stoned and left for dead. In Ephesus, he wrestled with with demonic powers and faced another riot. In Corinth, he was ridiculed, scorned, accused in court. Many adversaries. Remember how he described it himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. begins in verse 9 by saying that we, us apostles, are last of all like men sentenced to death. You might recall when we preached through that, he's talking about the procession coming into the Colosseum and the people last in line are the dead men walking. They're coming in to be eaten. That's where God's put us. Last of all like men sentenced to death. We're, we're about to become a spectacle. The crowd's going to sit up there and drink wine, eat grapes, and watch us be eaten by lions and killed by gladiators. We are fools, weak, hungry, poor, beaten, slandered, treated like the scum of the earth. That's in chapter 4. It cost Paul and company a whole lot to go to all of these different cities and engage in the effective work of those wide open places where churches and Christians were planted. A marvelous thing that cost Him a ton. Just like it cost the Lord Jesus Himself. Who is the one, after all, who paved the way in this paying a cost for the work of the Lord. He set the tone for shame and sorrow and loss and humiliation and pain and death. A cost that He freely paid so as to pull out people from the peoples and make a people for His own possession to the honor of God his Father. Jesus is the man of sorrows crucified, well acquainted with grief and pain. Which is all the more shocking when we consider that He's the King of Heaven. He's the King of Heaven, who did not count equality with that place to be grasped onto, into, but let go of it, and suffered the humiliation of becoming a man. Suffered the humiliation of becoming a servant man. Suffered the humiliation of becoming a servant man who was killed. suffering the humiliation of a servant man killed on a cross, naked for people to laugh at and spit on and mock, as he died over hours. It cost Him. The first price to be paid, He paid. The price of removing our sin off of us. That's what the cross is about. But it cost Paul and Timothy all of the ridicule and all of the pain and shame and and suffering that they they talk about there in chapter 4. They are the ones who are going out Carrying Jesus' call to the nations that he describes in John chapter 10, where he says, I have other sheep. He's talking in a Jewish context. I have other sheep from out there. I must go get them. They will hear my voice because they are already my sheep. They have been given to me by the divine will of the Father. And like any shepherd, when he calls his sheep, they hear and they come. I'm going to go call them. I have to. The determination of God is awesome. I will, and they will come. Well, how do they hear the voice? They hear it through the one sent, Paul and Timothy, as they pay the price, go and speak. The work of Jesus, the work of the Lord, carried out by Paul, the work of the Lord, carried out by Timothy, the work of the Lord. Where am I going with this? Us. Verse 58, abounding in the work of the Lord. Command, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the immediate context. We could skip back to chapter 4, where after he lists out all of that shame and suffering in verse 16, Paul says, Be an imitator of me. What an imitation. Be an imitator of me. And in fact, that's why I have sent you, Timothy, he says there, so that you can be reminded of what it's like to imitate me. Timothy will model it for you again. Be an imitator of me. In other words, embrace the cost. The cost associated with the work of the Lord, the work of calling in people from the nations to be the one people of God. I need to qualify this carefully. Work of the Lord must be thought of as forward-looking, as outward-looking. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The Great Commission is to all of us about how as we are going through life, we are all to make disciples of the nations. There's a posture developed here for the church of, if, not looking at me, look at me a posture, our weight is to be on our front foot. We are leaning into the nations. We are leaning into rather than resting back in the existing sheep pen. safe and secure. We have a forward- leaning pot the church, Fundamentally, the church plays offense in the game of life. This is my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against. That's the gates of hell. That's an ancient city metaphor. The gates, and there's a battering ram smashing against the gates of hell, and they will not stand. Who's who's swinging the battering ram? The spirit-empowered church. We are not on the other side holding the door back. We're playing offense. So we have that posture that needs to be developed and held on to. And I must also say, here's, here's the qualifier there. We can't think about this separate from all that we said about the spiritual gifts in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Because all of us, if you're a Christian, all of us have been given different spiritual gifts that are all of them meant to flavor how it is we lean forward. We're going to do it in vastly different ways. I knew of one guy one time who, who had a, a very strong gift of teaching and he was married to a wife with the gift of hospitality. And he said, you would be amazed at the types and numbers of people that end up sitting in my living room hearing the gospel from my lips while my wife is in the kitchen. They're not hearing it from her lips, but they're not in my living room because of me. She knows what she's doing. Loving them. Caring for them, providing for them, so that they come and they want to sit in her living room and listen to her husband do his thing. And together they're leaning in. Now, would you say, is she an evangelist? She'd probably say, no, I'm a, I'm a person gifted with hospitality. Leaning into a fallen world, seeking and saving the lost. It's going it's to influence greatly influence how it is we go about this. And furthermore, I, I talk about not sitting content in, in the existing sheepfold. Well, we need to also be honest that the church called to lean into the world and to speak out christ 's call a broken church does not lean into the world and speak Christ; it leans into the world and becomes like the world so we we need very much to think about fixing the church and for us and for a huge portion of the church in America, this this is an ongoing decades-long work to fix the church so that we don't look and sound like the world. So we sound and look like Jesus. So many of our gifts will be looking at and fixing, hopefully, this little body, but that's for the sake of leaning into the world. We must never lose the fundamental offense nature. Brothers and sisters, there is a wide open door of opportunity in the world. It's not all the same everywhere. It's not all the same everywhere. The very fact that Paul says this about Ephesus indicates it's not always the same everywhere. He's going to stay there because something unique is going on there. But there is wide open opportunity in the nations out there and in the nations in here. But sometimes that wide open door has an admission price. We, the people of God, must be willing to pay it under the power of God, trusting in the promise of God that nothing is in vain, verse 58, that we have a life that is secure. We have a Savior who is strong and good and will bless you in every endeavor, will empower you in every endeavor, and never let your life fall. Believe Him. Practically speaking, that means things for our local evangelism. If I use the word evangelism to describe local outreach, it means something for how you talk to your neighbor. It means something for how you talk to your coworker, or or don't. Or how you befriend a person, first of all, before you talk to them. Are you thinking? Are you concerned? Do you see the, the call on us to be engaged in the work of the Lord? We have much to grow in in this as a church. Maybe that's more conversation for later this afternoon. But I don't want to totally tie this to just local evangelism because missions is something different and bigger. Missions involves a cross-cultural going that evangelism does not necessarily. I just need to say this briefly because I'm out of time, but I need to say one of my hopes for us as a church is that in years to come, we would be what is called ascending church. There are people on the missions board, people supported by our missions committee that used to go to church here 20 years ago. I would hope that there would be regularly People who used to go here last year or two years ago. That there are people, young people, who start here, who are saved here, who mature here, and see a heart that God has for the nations and it becomes theirs. And that God would call people and they would hear it and respond and would want to be involved in in a planting a church in a place where there isn't one. It is good to plant a church in the Salt Lake Valley. There are way more churches in the Salt Lake Valley than there are in whole countries of the world. Let's be honest about that. Do we need more churches in Salt Lake Valley? Sure. Yes. I guess. There are more churches within a stone's throw of Anywhere in the valley than there are in the whole country of Turkey, in the whole country of Saudi Arabia. Those places are hard, though. There's a cost to be paid there. Yeah. Maybe there'd be a wide open door of opportunity, though, amidst the many adversaries. But we'll never find out because we'll never be willing to pay the cost if we don't first say, God, I'm willing. God, here's my life, I'm available. Maybe towards that end, you might read this book. You go out the center doors, if you go out the side doors and you filter around, there's going to be a table right out there with this very thin volume. We got them for free, so they are free to you if you'll read it. If you're not going to read it, don't take it. But if you're going to read it, and this would be excellent to read to your kids, side note, one of the places it starts is with your single-digit age kids or grandkids. Talking to them, son, daughter, the nations, the nations, the nation, the nations. So they grow up thinking about it long before they're already obligated to everything else. Read, read it. What this is called filling up the afflictions of Christ, the cost of bringing the gospel to the nations in the lives of William Tyndale, Iram Judson, and John Patton, three missionaries. It's three biographies with an introduction about the passage alluded to, the filling up the afflictions of Christ. It's an easy read. It's an excellent read. It'd be great to read to your kids or if they're old enough to read themselves, but them themselves to read. Take one of these and read it and may God use it to persuade you of something marvelous. That though there is a cost to be paid, the benefit of paying it far exceeds it. You'll say something. Say something to the Word about what you treasure and you'll find something. What, what actually is sustaining you. You'll find it. You'll find Him. A treasure greater than anything you can have, anything you can hold on to, greater than anything you can give up. God is about, it's the work of the Lord, God is about calling people from the nations to make a people. And He's included us in the process. And so my plea to you, church, is engage with it. Let me pray. God, I thank you for small passages that have little nuggets in them. Thank you for how you speak in all your little nuggets and small passages. And I pray that the little pieces here about your church in many countries of all different sorts of people, about the work of reaching them and paying a price to do so, I pray that that would take seed and germinate and grow in the lives of your children here. That you would move them to follow you. Maybe follow you right next door or across the hallway at work. Maybe to follow you in the far corners of the globe. But move them to follow you. Would you make us a church that is concerned about others? Would you make me a man? Would you make us individual people and make us a people concerned about others? We need you to move in us, Lord, towards that end, and I pray you'd do it, and I pray you would from that then spread Jesus' fame far and wide, bringing his kingdom, causing it to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. May that happen, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.